0: Hello everyone, welcome to Mouth Off. This is the official podcast of heyyouguys.co.uk. My name's John Lys, and joining me as always we are very lucky to have Craig Skinner and Brendan Connolly. And we're going to change things slightly in the way that we do things this week. Before we get to any of the news or the films to review, a bit of a self-congratulatory bit because it was announced today by wikio which is a blog uh, ranking website in the uk that hey you guys is the number one cinema film blog in the uk now this is kind of um a big deal for us we're intensely proud of uh, of everyone that's in the hey you guys team and we just want to kind of thank you all for sticking with us over the last year and a half and um and helping to make us number one because it's a uh, it's a really big deal for us so thank you very much um also, uh, at the end of this podcast, what we're going to be doing is uh, we're going to be adding an interview that Brendan conducted with, um, with Craig McCall, whose film, Cameraman, The Life and Works of Jack Cardiff, recently played at the BFI. And uh, Brendan had a chance to sit down with, uh, with Craig and talk about um, uh, his film and sort of the wider uh, work of Jack Cardiff. So I'll put that on at the, end of the, at the end of the podcast so you can listen to it there. It'll also go up on the site as well. Okay, so chaps that's a bit of a housekeeping done let's kick off with a bit of news uh very sad bit of news that was reported just a couple of days ago was the death of dennis hopper now obviously as soon as something like that is announced people will always turn to to their favorite dennis hopper uh, performance and for me one of the things that kept cropping up in all the obituaries and all the cool conversation people were having about this uh, about this guy and his, you know he he worked endlessly and you know, tirelessly for, for so many years, but there are a couple of, of roles of his that really, really stood out from the rest. Let me ask you first, uh, Brendan, I'll go to you. Um, when you think of Dennis Hopper, what do you think about about you know the work that he did and also your favourite performance of
1: his? Immediately think of Frank Booth, because I think Frank Booth is one of the most uh, amazing characterisations in, in all of cinema, um, Frank Booth being the dark heart at the centre of Blue Velvet. Um, he's, he's a nightmare of a man. Um, and uh, people who know the film well will, will know what I mean by that. And um, Hopper's performance of, of Frank Booth is genuinely uh, frightening uh, and a little bit upsetting. Um, and that's precisely what is necessary. Now, there's this, this story, and I, I'm sure it's a little bit of uh, apocrypha, but David Lynch wasn't sure who he was going to cast. And and Hopper said, no, no, you have to cast me. I am Frank Booth. And Lynch <laughs> thought, we'll have to run out of the room if you're Frank Booth.
0: Exactly. it's like, I'm, I'm going to cast you or I'm going to die, pretty much. So he didn't leave yeah, him much choice.
1: really, um, really frightening character. And, and Lynch's characterization of paper and, and, and the way that he he designed Booth visually is, is, is incredible. But... Hopper fits into that hand in glove and, and he gives a, an incredibly forthright, fright um, driving characterization that I think is probably the the best performance of of the 1980s and I, I think it 's just one of the great uh, great nightmares in cinema and it 's only one side of what hopper does, and it 's so powerful that it actually has colored a lot of you know, people 's conception of, of him you know you go back to some of his earlier work even you know up to the late 70s and he wasn't you know he was a much more benign figure in a sense right but but now hopper was cast in a sort of a very a uh, very cold light and, and, and was shown to be to be so strong a villain for, for want of a better term villain doesn't really really say it but but so strong a you know a. a, a a, a negative person yeah that uh, that 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 it was something he he kept getting cast as again and again, so you know not only did it bring him back after a couple of years pretty much of you know smaller parts, lesser parts uh and put him right at the front forefront of a film again, it did change people 's perception of him somewhat, but there are some other films in which he plays just just a sweetheart really. Mm, I mean, it's interesting that, that Frank
0: Booth, because, you know, you mentioned Frank Booth, because that, that's the one that I immediately thought of and it was such a powerful and, you know, iconic performance and then it, it kind of, um, it did become part of, 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 of Dennis Hopper's career in the sense that it kept going back to that and, he, you know, he became like the the crazy villain of choice, you know, even in things. Like speed, which is you know where a lot of people may have sort of picked that up, and you know he is the he is the bad guy, and um, I one mean, other...
1: speed speed's the the mainstream thing that happened directly as a result of Blue Velvet, isn't it? It's the sort of it's it's the mainstream catching up with with Hopper's career. Do you know what I mean? It's really what...
0: strange because that was like how many years, nearly ten years after after Blue Velvet, and you had things like Tree Romance just the year before Speed, and you know, and then he you know he sort of played. Um, Bit parts and TV and stuff in the middle of that. It seems strange that it took so long for him to kind of get picked up again.
1: The, the scene in True Romance he's got with with Christopher Walken mm. is is it just stops me in my tracks every time I watch it. Really, mm. they're they're complicated characters and and the guys do the the right injustice and they they you know they transcend the fact that they're in a Tony Scott film. You know <laughs> they, they soar above it and I think they just give astonishing performances and i think it's by far and away the best thing in the film yeah i'd by have f- to
0: agree with you it's, it's got a lot to do with the way that they play off each other and ways you've got someone like keanu reeves going up against him in, in speed you don't have you know quite the same you know quite the same effect really but um craig what about you what are your sort of um favorite memories of, of dennis harper's career
2: um well i mean yeah i, I mirror definitely what brendan said i mean Blue Velvet, is he's just phenomenal in. And, um, and we're all Lynch fans think, as well, aren't we? So they, you
0: know, we're bound to pick that one out.
2: Yeah, definitely. But I think, I mean, it's... When you look back over his filmography, it's its kind of startling, perhaps, how few roles there are that are really great by him, despite the fact that he is fantastic, and I think... Or was fantastic. But um, I think when you pick out those roles, I think Brendan's right, that he does have did have a light-hearted kind of side to him i mean there's even things like apocalypse now i absolutely love him in apocalypse now mm. and uh i think his role in that was a little bit light-hearted in a way and um i i don't know i yeah i think he's in so many great was in so many great films but um but yeah maybe not enough and i think um i don't think he got enough chances to work with some great people that he could have done i mean um especially when you pick them out and there's films where he's doubling up on directors and I just think there's a lot of other people I wish he could have worked with. Mm. And especially when you see films like that didn't maybe get the um attention that maybe they should have done when you see his performance in something like Mad Dog Morgan, which is just phenomenal as yeah. well. And uh, I think yeah, I think he was a fantastic actor and I think it's yeah, maybe a bit of a shame that he didn't that he's perhaps remembered more for things like Speed or Waterworld than
0: See Block, yeah. I agree with you, one would hope not, and I mean, obviously we know him from, you know, from Blue Velvet, and people before us would, would know him from, from Easy Rider, do you know what I mean, which was such a, that was such a kick up the arse, do you know what I mean, and um, he he was was such such an icon of of that period, that, and then it took it like it's, it's almost like every, every single decade there was, or every single sort of five or six years there was a really iconic performance, but in the middle of it, you know, he didn't he didn't maybe find the right people but um just uh you know i, I when i when i wrote up the story I, I, I realized how few of his films i'd seen obviously there are a lot of them and, uh, and you can't go through them all but you'd pick out mad dog morgan would you craig brendan what about you is there any ones that maybe people haven't seen that you want to pick out for people
1: paris trout i think was very good filmed by stephen gilmore maggie and jake's father okay. um uh, in, in which he plays Paris Trout. His portrayal of a sort of a Tim Page-style photojournalist in the Apocalypse Now really is the highlight of that film for me, actually, yeah. I've got to say. Um, yeah, I don't know. I do like seeing the young Dennis, right? I like seeing him with uh, Jimmy Dean in, in, in Giant and so on. I like I like seeing that. That's um, that's nice just to, to see that side of him as well. Yeah. Um, you know... Even in a sort of a a, a a very, hey, you guys sort of pitch film like My Science Project, uh, I think he's adding something, you know? Yeah. In the same year as Blue Velvet, he was in um, River's Edge, which I think is a, a unfairly sort of forgotten film, and his character in that is a really interesting a guy called, called Feck. Tim Hunter, who directed that, actually went to some episodes of, of Twin Peaks, and he's, he's obviously got some sympathies with Mr Lynch's Worldview that they both both called on uh, on Hopper at the same time. Um, You know, forgetting uh, he was a director too, it does him a great injustice. I think we should remember, Mm. and particularly Easy Rider's sort of place in film history, irrespective of its sort of aesthetic failings. I suppose though it's it's a good film. Let's let's be let's be fair. It's a good film, but how it ushered in a new, helped bring in a new wave. Uh, in Hollywood um, uh, and sort of started what people think of as as a real, you know, golden era for Hollywood mm. filmmaking, played an, an instrumental part in that and um, I think uh, he must be remembered for that too sure. um, but even lately, you know even lately I've been enjoying him his political turnaround in late life where he became uh, um, you know, rather right wing I, I wasn't uh, a fan of Obviously, <laughs> he turned up um, in an American Carol, which was sort of a horrible piece of right wing propaganda. And, um, you know, but, but, but before that, he was cast uh, in Land of the Dead as, as Kaufman, who was sort of the, the figure, the, the villain that represented the Bush administration. So I don't quite know when he turned, whether Land of the Dead was just a paycheck for him. Whether he was uh, politically ambiguous or maybe he was right wing and and didn't agree with the Bush administration, I don't quite know. But I mean, as recently as 2005, he was uh, being an instrumental part in you know spreading liberal discourse in cinema.
0: Sure, it's. I mean, it is a you know when when people would would look back on it, they might miss out a few you know a few of the sort of you know subtleties of the career. And I think you know if if you can do anything. When, when someone dies it is to look back and to sort of celebrate the best that, that, that they gave us do you know what I mean so I think it's I think, um, gone great
2: I think I've got a good recommendation as well if you want to watch uh, kind of Dennis Hopper as Dennis Hopper mm-hmm. even though um, I'm sure it's kind of slightly myth building at the same time uh, is a series called Fishing with John which um, features John Lurie going fishing with various celebrities um, which kind of sounds stupid, but it's, it's really not. It's, uh, it's kind of a comedy show, but not kind of overtly comedy. And it it's purely rests on the guests, I think, really. The guests included uh, Jim Jamoosh, uh, Tom Waits, Matt Dillon, Willem Dafoe. And for the kind of final two episodes was Dennis Hopper. And uh, John Lurie and Dennis Hopper go off in search of the giant squid in Thailand, um, which obviously I think isn't real. So uh, it's no. not a serious. <laughs> no. investigation into the giant squid. Um, but, it's, a, um, it's,
1: it's a really unusual addition to the Criterion collection. This, but but it, it's nice yeah. because it's made it very widely available for people.
2: Yeah, it's it's such a fun series, and uh, the theme tune is uh, if to <laughs> stuff. It's I used to sing that incessantly. Uh, <laughs> tune. But, um, yeah, the Dennis Hopper double bill is just it's just fantastic, um, and yeah, I, I'll certainly be watching that again soon uh, it's yeah it's a great way to remember Dennis Hopper as well I think
0: okay nice one thank you guys I appreciate that um, moving on from, uh, from from Dennis Hopper that kind of you know that was a kind of a bad start to the to the week um, we learned a few other bits of news which we'll just kind of briefly talk about one of them um, kind of came and went not many people were, you know reported on it but for me I kind of I, w- I was a fan of the source material um, that it was relating to and a few of the people involved so I thought it was worth bringing to people's attention um Neil Gaiman uh, wrote a book in 2008 called The Graveyard Book, which um, is uh, kind of a nice, uh, dark fairy tale for, for kids, but also for adults. And it's, it's, it's a typical game. And it's, um, it won the Hugo Award, I think, for Best Novel um, a year later. And um, it's uh, the story of an orphan, and he's in the graveyard, and there's lots of ghosts who kind of help. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to you know, go into it too much, but it's a really, really good example of... Uh, Sort of you know, game the way he plays with um, you know the fairy tale fantasy genre, and it's such fun and it's nice and dark as well. Even from the very very first, um, you know, the first few paragraphs, it's, it it will really will grip you. And um, this is now being brought to the screen, and the reason that we reported on it is because uh, Chris Columbus is. Um, uh, production company 1492 Pictures um, teamed up with uh, with CJ Entertainment, and they've 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 now joined forces to kind of finance this and um, and bring it bring it to the screen um, with uh, Neil Jordan as the uh, as as the director of, of the film, and also I think he's going to be adapting. Um, Gaiman's original original material So um, I'm actually really looking forward to this for, for, for many reasons And Craig and I were talking about this just before um, the, the podcast uh, started That it's a really interesting fusion of um, of Visions So uh, Brendan I know that you wanted to chat about this Give us your take on this bit of news
1: I think it's a tremendous book And I love Neil Jordan So uh, I think we're on a bit of a promise here Boys I think this one's going to come in good for us What's interesting is that Jordan's on You know um, a few drafts of this now this is not his first draft that they're working on and and Gaiman has said you know quite candidly that the first draft was too faithful to the book and it wasn't working really as a piece of cinema and, and if you look at a film like Coraline in which Henry Selick has taken more or less the plot of the film and misshaped it in, a, in an appropriately cinematic way added a, uh, an entirely new character that doesn't exist in the book at all um, who runs throughout pretty much the whole story but Really, you know it's a new ribcage same heart mm. and um, I think uh, Gaiman's concern was that Jordan wasn't, wasn't doing this at first like he wasn't giving himself permission to mess with a book that he loved so much that's, that's kind of the way that, that Gaiman's phrased it and he's now sort of you know encouraged him to, to do so and I think Jordan's a truly cinematic thinker I mean if you look at uh, any of his films really I mean it's um, pulling off, off the top of my head the um Uh, In Dreams, actually, appropriately for Frank Booth, shall we say. In Dreams uh, starts with a wonderful sequence in which we see, you know, a village and it's very dark and we can't quite see what's going on and lights come towards us. And then we see that there are lights being held by divers and this entire village is submerged underwater. Um, It's a a beautifully cinematic piece of of, of storytelling. And and later in the film, uh, the the wings of a a children's uh, sort of fairy costume snagged on a Sort of a bramble bush, uh, illuminated by a torch in this sort of frightening uh, sort of chase through through the woods. He's he's very uh, adept at marshalling the sort of imagery we associate with folklore mm. and dreams and fairy tales. And Gaiman is too. It's a match made in heaven, and it's a wonderful book. And it's very episodic. Um, and, and it won't be now I think it won't be now I think that's the encouragement it's given him like the Jungle Book before it which is the paradigm around which it's based it was a series of stories about growing up and the way Disney for example made that into uh, a more linear story with a, a beginning, middle and end that could be digested without, you know, without the feeling that you know, we're reaching the end of a chapter and starting a new one uh, every few minutes um, hopefully, uh, Mr. Jordan will be able to achieve that in his adaptation of Gaiman's wonderful book.
0: And isn't it great to see that you have someone like Gaiman who um, does create these worlds so perfectly uh, on the page that he's kind of perfectly fine. In fact, encouraging, you know, Jordan to 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 make it his own. You know, to to have that, you know, confidence in in your own material, but also the ability just to give it up and to say. I'm more interested in seeing what you would do with the bare bones of this. You know, no pun intended for the graveyard book, but you know, what can you make of this? In the, in the same way that um, I haven't read Stardust, I'm not sure quite how um, Matthew Vaughn would sort have of took that and, uh, and made it into the film. But Coraline, in, in, in particular, I totally agree with you there, um, Craig. Um, any any thoughts on on this on on Jordan or Gaiman?
2: Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah, that is important that um, a filmmaker has the the kind of permission to go and make the film they want to. I remember hearing a story about uh, John Hillcoat and The Road, and that kind of Cormac McCarthy handed that book over to John Hillicote to make a film, and that it wasn't, if I'm remembering the story right, that it wasn't kind of just a retelling. That it was his own version, and that that's okay. And I think um, I think that could that could be really interesting, especially with Neil Jordan at the helm. Um, yeah, I mean, I. I I haven't actually seen as many Neil Jordan films as I'd like to have done but um I absolutely love Company of Wolves and I actually really enjoyed um Breakfast on Pluto it came out a couple of years ago and uh so he's certainly someone that is an interesting choice I think and could be could do something very interesting with it. I'm not too sure about Chris Columbus though um just because of the kind of films he ends up being attached to go very very <laughs> um, into the blockbuster realm and obviously yeah, yeah. it's controversial for me to be uh don't, Not talking yeah. in a positive light about Chris Columbus. What about that?
0: Uh, hack Columbus wouldn't well, no, but it's <laughs> interesting because what, what, what we were talking about before is the fact that imagine if you had it, you know, if you had Chris Columbus stepping in to adapt and, and, and direct, it, you would get a very, very different, you know, film at the end of it. But I did wonder: is it just a purely financial thing, or is, he, is Chris is Columbus going to step in and maybe try and shape the production? You know, I can't see it with Gaiman and 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 Jordan, you know, uh, being involved, I can't... No, he's just a in. money
1: man. I'll tell you what film you'd get if Columbus stepped in to direct this. You'd get a newsreel <laughs> of his funeral and me dancing on the casket. That's the film you'd get.
0: <laughs> I love it. I think that's the second week in a row you've threatened to kill a director, which is pretty good, Brendan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I've just, I've just alleged that it would happen in, in a parallel universe that doesn't exist. Okay, You're like
2: well, a film critic version of uh, of Klaus Kinski, Brendan. <laughs>
0: There you go put that on your passport. What I was going. for. <laughs>
2: um, I think as well. I mean, anyth- I, I kind of get the feeling now. Anything that gets adapted from the Game and is is good because I just he's such a great storyteller and such a. So many of the things he does are so visual as well, and his ties to comic books. I mean, it, I'm really fascinated to see anything that comes out of anything that Game has let, done. Let me I've, send you the, absolutely, let me
1: send you the Sandman screenplay by the guys who wrote Pir- Pir- Pirates of the Caribbean. Then let's see what happens.
0: Is that 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 was the one thing I was thinking because there is you know the Sandman series that I guess is almost a bit like a holy grail of of, of gaming stuff and I, I I have no idea if he has any plans or any desire to do it but the thing that I would love to see that he was involved with is um, uh, Good Omens um, I'd love to see a version of that and I kind of want to see Terry Gilliam take that on and do that 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 would kind of be my my ultimate um, you know Neil Gaiman um, uh, you know, work on screen because that I had such fun with that, and it's the, it's one of the few books that I've kind of read in one sitting. I got I got kind of hooked, and I'd be very interested to see if, if, if that's you know going to ever come into play. But um, okay, that's the uh, that's the graveyard book news. The other bit of news that kind of um, was a bit of a bombshell, um, uh, certainly online when it when it appeared um, via the uh, the J.R. Tolkien um, site, uh, the One ring.net. Peter Jackson and Guillermo del Toro basically announced that del Toro would not be directing the two Hobbit films. Now, this was uh, a huge shock to people. They couldn't, you know, del Toro has been has been associated with this. He's been, you know, working with Jackson to bring the films to the screens for a long, long time now. And to suddenly have the announcement that he, be, because of all the delays, because of all the, I think he was, um, part of it was because he didn't want to spend time in New Zealand for another however many years he sort of spent enough time with it but um the news that he was stepping aside and the search on for a new director was kind of an interesting one because instantly the internet's filled up with you know 10 directors who could take it over and then of course you had the the subsequent old peter jackson may direct you know um the hobbit and why it may be a really really good thing um but guys um what was your take on on the news and what do you think will happen next craig let's get to you first
2: um, yeah i mean uh it it would have been interesting to see del toro's uh hobbit um certainly would have been a different vision I think to peter jackson's but along probably within the same world it wouldn't have seemed too far removed but i don 't know let 's see who they get next i'm not um I'm not exactly devastated like a lot of people are, but um who knows it might not have been any good it could have yeah, I imagine it probably would have been del Toro's a pretty competent director but and a kind of visual stylist as well. But, um, yeah, I'm intrigued to see who they pick next. And I, I kind of doubt it will be Peter Jackson because if Peter Jackson was intending to make The Hobbit, I'm not sure why he didn't do it straight away. Um, he certainly had the option, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, I think that there, there was so much... There were, there were so many politics... Um, following the um, Lord of the Rings, and also that was like a whole decade of his life, I think. Maybe that was a reason why he didn't want to go and do it.
1: And then, you know, the timing was such that it may not have been possible, mm. and indeed, the timing is such that it won't be possible. People appear to have forgotten that um, Jackson
0: actually has work commitments. Well, exactly, yeah. I mean, there's Tintin now, and then Tintin next. And then Tintin next, exactly. So, you know, and they're, they're certainly not going to delay Seems the hobby be- by another couple of years, are they?
1: Seems to be that mortal engines is gearing up too. If you uh, pardon the pun, so um, I think um, Jackson's manager's statement this week that you know he's probably not available translates into we know what he's doing, but we're not telling you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think I, it's very sad. I, I think I think to have spent you know uh, what, three years working on something and then knowing that you've got to walk away from it because you know you've got a young family and uh you know these delays are becoming indefinite and uh you know they're growing up in a in a culture that, that um you're not going to continue living in you know i mean there, there comes a point where you're going to want to make a break i mean i know if i took, to, to rachel three years ago I said let's go to new zealand for five years if three years into it we're still at the start of that five-year period <laughs> um she might be expecting me to come back home um so I feel very, very bad for Guillermo and I'm sorry that he feels he has to have made this this choice or indeed that he's been forced into this and that he's not going to be able to to finish his film. Exactly. Um, but he's going to finish the screenplays and, and I think take great, great pride in that and I hope that's some some consolation for, for him and indeed for Peter. But it, it's blindingly obvious to me who should be directing this film.
0: Okay, why don't you give us a, why don't you give us a name, Brendan?
1: Fran Walsh.
0: That's an interesting choice. Okay. I never thought of that okay is, is that even in is that even on the cards or is that
1: well who knows but mm. I'll tell you what the stuff she directed in the uh, in the Rings films was amongst the best she directed Andy Serkis uh, you know split scene you know where he mm. was uh, the, the you know the, the Gollum, Gollum yeah. sort mm. of uh Dichotomy scene uh, and, and nailed it. And um, you know, she she knows the script. She knows she knows the world. And uh, I'd love to see her uh, direct if indeed she wants to. You know, um, her her second unit stuff has been wonderful. Her script writing is tremendous. Um, and and I would love 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 to see her direct the Hobbit.
0: Okay, that's really really interesting. I hadn't even considered it, but because I know that they obviously work on it together. Uh, but Jackson was the was the one whose name was on the you know director credit, so I didn't know how involved she even got with the with the Lord of the Rings, so it'd be really interesting to see if that, if that is the next step. How many? Well they had
1: an umpty million units and she directed one of them, so But they were among
0: the best. Okay, that'd be okay, that's an interesting take. Um okay, obviously if there's as as there's, there's more, you know, announcements on who's gonna take it over, that'll be an interesting one and we'll you know obviously be discussing each and every name that comes up. Um that's going to be it for the film news uh, for this week. We're going to move on to um, to our film uh, to review for this week. It's a film that came out in the US last year and has been uh, delayed so long in coming out of here that the, the Blu-ray and the DVD is actually widely available in the US and also I think in other parts of uh, in other parts of Europe. But it actually, it comes out tomorrow. It's uh, Ryan Johnson's second film. Um, his follow on from, uh, from his first film, uh, Brick, uh, and it's called The Brothers Bloom. Now, Craig and I saw this um, about a month ago. Was it, Craig? Um,
2: yeah, it was about that, yeah.
0: And, um, and we, uh, we'd never met, actually, at the time. We obviously, you know, we work on the site and we do and we, and we the podcast, but this was the first time we'd actually met, and it's a pretty good first date, I have to say, because it was a pretty great <laughs> film. Um, uh, Ryan Johnson, um, obviously, he, he started out with Brick, Brothers Bloom is a kind of a bigger production um, in uh, in kind of every way. But um, to give a kind of a, a really really basic plot summary, the Brothers Bloom, who are two brothers played by Adrian Brody and Mark Ruffalo, um, are con men. They've been they they, they were con boys, and they um, they obviously graduated to be uh, you know some of the best in the world. Um, and it's their various different swindles and schemes that um, that provide the um, the threads through which the film kind of follows. Um, the main, um, the main uh, scheme that they that they undertake, which is kind of where um, Rachel Vice comes into the picture. She plays Penelope, who is this um, slightly dotty, uh, very rich uh, millionaireess who's living in this enormous house by herself. And um, what they decide to do is they decide to take on one last job because Adrian Brody's character wants out. He wants out of the partnership, and um, they basically take her on a on a journey, on a scheme, they kind of get her involved in the in the scheme. But you know, basically, what what Johnson does is he he always holds off telling us exactly what the what 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 the end of the scheme is. Is it to rip her off, or is it to just you know to, to make her part of the gang? So, um, but it's, there's just a really really um, enjoyable uh, and um, a really really you know witty um, witty dialogue to the to the whole film. Craig, I, I really enjoyed this, but let, let's have your thoughts first of all on the Brothers Bloom.
2: Uh, Yeah, I mean, I absolutely loved it. I think, um, yeah, it is a much bigger uh, kind of film for Ryan Johnson. It's, I think, probably something like 60 times the budget of Brick, um, which it shows. It's got um, a much more all-star cast, or certainly a cast that were all-star at the time of making. Um, And it's got a lot of different locations. It's uh, kind of... They jet off around the world. Um, Which is pretty cool. And I think the... The film is just a kind of joyous film about storytelling. Um, it's really, really nicely woven, the way the main characters tell stories and they're all obsessed with the way their life is told through a story. And the film itself is about this, these lives as stories. And um, the way the main character, Stephen, crafts these stories is, is the way that Ryan Johnson crafts the stories in the film. And uh, I
1: think... Yeah,
2: it's it's intricately woven. I think it's it's one that you you could watch ten times and you'd still find things to like about it that you hadn't really seen or enjoyed as much the first time round. Um, and I think the, the cast is absolutely great in it as well. They do fantastic jobs of, of charming you. And I think um, uh, my review will go up soon. I think one of the things I said quite a bit in is that the film needs to charm you in order to work because there's elements of it that, could come across as perhaps a little too clever and um, I think the thing is they are just clever and there's nothing wrong with that and I think we see a lot of films in the cinema at the moment that aren't particularly clever and they're not particularly well made and so when a film comes along and it is very well made... (laughs)
0: Yeah, you, we, we'll talk about that later, Brent. <laughs> but thank, thank you for bringing that <laughs> sorry, in Sorry, I'm just coughing. I'm just yeah, coughing. I'm sure you are. Um, okay, Craig, sorry to, to cut you in there, but one of the things that, that you just made me remember, actually, is, is, is the notion of it being charming, but it's never smug. That's the kind of thing that I think it, it almost... Um, it kind of, you know, sometimes verges on, on on becoming a bit smug, but it never ever does it because it is so charming, and it is you kind of fall in love with with the characters and and, and their own sort of narratives. And it's when they start playing their, you know, or, you know, designing their cons and their schemes, you are there at the very beginning, and you sort of see it all play out in their minds and on paper, and then you see it unfold. So you kind of feel part of the part of the gang, which is exactly what what you're meant to feel. Um, but one of the things that I that I loved about it is that never it never settled it never rested on any laurels that it that it kind of gave itself um, you know from from one scene to the next. I think some people might might not enjoy the fact that you know a, a lot of it is slightly dotty and it's slightly kooky and um, you know you have to kind of buy into the world. You have to buy into the world where Rachel Vice is this kind of crazy you know very rich person. But I don't know there was something. Something nice and romantic about about her character, and when she meets um, Bloom, who's Adrian Brody's character, you kind of really want to see them together. And it's almost like Penelope is the is the main thread, um, you know, through which uh, you know their their one last scheme is dependent well, on, and then is completely yeah. attached to.
2: Sorry, sorry I, the the film was originally entitled Penelope, um, and there's a moment at the start where Ricky j who does the narration says something along the lines of, this is the story of Penelope Mm. and the brothers Bloom. And I think, yeah, I think she's so important. I think in a way she's almost as much as a protagonist as Bloom is. And, yeah, I I think you're saying about the introduction of her and the way you have to kind of be charmed by her as well as the film. And I think Ryan Johnson does such a good job of not wasting moments. And I think even when you see something on screen that might seem like just a clever little camera movement or uh, a funny, witty bit of editing or, a, or what might seem like a throwaway line. I don't think he's wasting any of those moments. And I think it's all fantastic- on purpose, isn't it? Yeah, I th- it's crafted, and I think that's, that's one of the joys of it, that if there's a moment, say, where... There's a moment where she tells a kind of relatively expositional story but at the same time does a little card trick. Mm. And these sort of moments, there's a reason. They're not, they're not just throwaway, and I think... Um, I think what, what those kind of reason? witty moments. Sorry, Brandon. Oh.
1: What is that reason?
0: What in that instance?
1: Yeah.
0: You mean of doing the card trick?
1: Well, I mean, uh, I mean, are we saying that each of these things have plot reasons, or are we saying that? I mean, I, I'm sort of. Uh, 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 what we try? I, I'm trying to understand what Craig's point is here. Right? Are we saying that that. There's narrative reason for these things, and these things later resonate in a new way. Can I, Are we yeah. saying that they they move us to some sort of um, new emotional stance at that point, or it's partly or, both,
0: Brendan? Because the thing is, when you're when when she's doing when she's talking about this, this this story, when she's doing the card trick, first of all, in the very way that Johnson's camera begins on her face, or rather, beginner you know, begins with her just in front, sitting at this table, and then right. as you see her. Playing with the cards, not doing anything with them. And then, all of a sudden, as she's telling the story, you actually realize that what she's doing is this really intricate trick, but she's not doing it for anyone's, you know, to impress anybody. She's just doing it as she talks. <laughs> and part of it means that you don't know if she is cleverer than she, than she lets on, if she is more, you know, um, involved in conning them. Do you know what I mean? So the, it it kind of adds uh, the, the potential uh, duplicitous nature of her character, and you don't know that, and you are always, you know, concerned about that, you know, throughout the throughout the you know the rest. So, of the so I, I guess what we're saying at a macro level is that there's no loose ends. Is that effectively what? Kind we're saying? of yeah, but it's um mm-hmm. it, it, it not it not any kind of indication to this character because the. The, because of what you know of her already, you, you know of, her, of the life that she's led. You know of her current situation. She's full of all these different tricks, but she's got no idea. Um, she basically collects hobbies. That's one of her things. So she's really, really good at a lot of bizarre, you know, yes. things. And that, and that's that's really, really good fun. But when she starts to play with the cards, you start to think: Is she cleverer than the brothers Bloom? Is she is she going to going to pull one over, you know, on them? And that's that adds a kind of a new element because. Right, You know, you don't know. So, yes, it kind of does. But also, at the same time, it's just a really, really nice character moment because she could be just doing this totally unconsciously and better than anybody else that you've ever seen do a little card trick. Do you know what I mean?
2: Right. And, so. and I think as well, um, the film sets you up to question pretty much every, everything you're seeing. So something that might at first seem throwaway, the film almost tells you right at the start to keep an eye on things mm. there's a the film starts with a one of their cons well i know it doesn't actually sorry the film starts with a backstory and mm. then it tells you the con is that the way yeah. yeah and the con uh adrian brodie's character yeah. does a voiceover where he explains that stephen uh mark ruffalo uh sets up this con so that the final moment his adrian brodie's words match the uh phonetically the Kind of leaving statement of the the mark 's wife yes and, and the placement of him and the color of his clothes and things, and that sort of kind of minute detail that is so important to making this com work, but actually could be insignificant, but it does make that difference and I think that that 's setting up for the whole film that 's so many things throughout the film that happen that have that sort of minute detail that um, i mean the col- colors in the film are really important I think mm. and and, yeah, it is, it is all these kind of tiny moments that that make up the whole. And I think, yeah, I think John explained the, the card scene being incredibly well, but also that card scene works very well just as a moment of expositional dialogue that doesn't feel like expo- expositional dialogue. Mm. And, and, and a I really think-
0: nice character piece as well, because you, you've you actually just reminded me of, of the whole phonetic thing at the, at the beginning with the con, because it immediately it engages you. Ryan Johnson has this real habit of being able to engage you right off the bat, and then it means that you can never become passive when you're when you're enjoying this film because there is something there is always something to question or something to look a bit you know a bit a, a bit closer to and it just it, it kind of seduces you in the way that the best cons do do you know what I mean makes you you know part of the gang but always on the outside and at the same time you're sort of watching all this unfold never sure of where it's going and to keep that going for like two hours or however long it does is, is a real achievement especially in your second film so who, who won't like it um it's it's difficult to to say because it's not um, it's not an ordinary romantic comedy which it can be billed as it's not um, uh, a kind of an easy film in the sense that if you're looking for entertainment you know you'll find it these these are not this is not the Expendables this is not the Eighteen where you have these men on a mission or the losers something like that there's no there are a few explosions in there um, but you know they're they're not there to look pretty and everything each thing has its has its moment um craig what do you think who won't enjoy this film
2: well well i think it does have mass appeal but i Mm. think it's difficult to market for exactly i think the problems you're having there describing it i think it's it's difficult to say who would and wouldn't like it because on one level i'd like to say that you have to be an active viewer in order to enjoy it because there's all those elements that you'll get so much out of but at the same time if you sat down and watched it on a purely surface level and didn't really think much about it afterwards, I, I think you'd probably get a fair bit of enjoyment out of it um, because it's very pretty, it's very nice to look at, it's, mm. it's enjoyable in, a, in in some surface ways, and, you know, the story, even if you didn't engage that much with it, you could follow it and, and find it reasonably entertaining. I, I wouldn't advise you watching it like that, but it kind of makes me think it's got pretty broad appeal. And I think I think we were saying afterwards, I you know, I can imagine... I can imagine all my family liking it. I can't mm. see that it's... There's nothing to put people off, really, apart from maybe the fact that it is quite quite clever. And I think <laughs> maybe sometimes people don't want to see a film that's particularly clever.
0: And maybe, uh, you know, like I said, it does verge on being a bit too um, self-aware, maybe a bit too smug. I mean, that's that's uh, a criticism yeah, the, that I've heard the, of it. This,
2: this, the self-awareness is, is part of it. It tells you totally. literally in the first yeah. ten minutes that this film is self-aware and... This is a story about stories, and and the characters even almost say it. And I mean, mm. I, I, that sounds like a criticism, really, but but it's not that
0: it, it, entrived, it all seems. It, yeah, it just works so beautifully. I think in the context of it, and, and special mention has to be made of the soundtrack to it um, from Nathan Johnson. Is he is he Ryan Johnson's cousin or I brother? Think or cousin, yeah. okay. I think cousin. Okay, because he didn't break. Had... Go on.
2: I think one of Ryan Johnson's other relations is on the um, commentary as well. Oh, is that right? Can, uh, if anyone fancies, you can download the commentary for free. Oh,
0: is that on Ryan Johnson's site?
2: Uh, yeah, you can get it through iTunes
0: as well. Oh, cool. I mean, it's, it's really, really worth doing. I, I don't know how wide a release it it's, it's getting, um, but I do know that I'll definitely be buying it on, on Blu ray as soon as I can because it actually looked pretty fantastic as well. So it'd be good to kind of capture that. But, Brendan, you've been asking a few questions. What do you think of, of Ryan Johnson? And uh, are you all totally interested in seeing Brothers Bloom?
1: Well, my first contact with Ryan Johnson was the film May, which he edited, and I loved May. I thought it was amazing. Lucky McKee's uh, sort of sad horror tragedy with Angela Bettis. Um, and then when I found out this guy had made a film and he was going to be playing at Sundance, I, I got quite excited about, about Brick. And I think it took it actually over two years, I think, get to the UK it may be just maybe just 18 months but it, it was certainly a long time and I spent a long time actually writing about it and being excited about it and waiting to to see it um and again Brothers Bloom has taken an incredibly long time to cross the Atlantic I've read the script for this film probably about three three and a half years ago now mm. um but I understand that the film has been altered actually significantly from from the script streamlined I think um but i loved the script uh i like the cast i think johnson's smart um i'm pretty much sure i'm gonna really enjoy it though that's the sort of you know that's a sort of rather stupid non-sceptical sort of thing that you, you shouldn't catch me i shouldn't say things like that i should be more scientific about it yes. i hope i enjoy it um so i'm looking forward to it a great deal and i shall be seeing it tomorrow
0: Oh, excellent. I really, really hope you enjoyed it. Let, let us know what, you know, what, what you think of it next week. Cause I mean, this is one film that, um, I've been looking forward to for a while and I didn't know when it was even going to be, you know, out in the, in the UK. And then when Craig said, you fancy coming along? It was like, well, of course I do. And the fact that I enjoyed it so much, um, you know, was, uh, was a really, really nice surprise. I have to say. And, um, you know, even if you don't, get the chance to see it in in, in cinemas do definitely go out and, and at least you know rent it or buy it because it's it's just nice to see someone doing something a little more interesting do you know what I mean especially we, you know we, we see so many films especially this year Dave, Dave and I honestly you know we were talking about the fact that there have been um you know a lot of films out this year that have just been crushing disappointments and it's nice to see some We you know one that even though this isn't from this year you know it's nice to see one that kind of can still surprise and you know can still make you kind of feel a warm and glowy inside so um yeah recommended from us brendan do let us know what, what you think of it. brothers bloom is out tomorrow um there is one other film out that was out um, actually yesterday which is noel clark's four three two one uh we're not going to talk about that this week there's a a very small chance that Noel may himself come on the podcast next week. Um, He, uh, he read our review uh, of, uh, of the film and he wasn't too happy. So um, there's a good chance he's going to come on and kind of give his opinion uh, about, about that film. So that film's out. Um, all over the place. At the that's moment. what we
1: need. We need the nice, clear, objective opinion of somebody <laughs> who's got all of their career tied up in it.
0: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, do you know what? It, it was out yesterday, and, and Twitter was just was going crazy with people retweeting it. In um, fact, that it's out. I've got no idea how well it did, or you know what. Well, what, pe-
2: what? people are saying it's um, sold out screenings. but yeah, that people can't get in to watch it. Which I don't. I don't know if that's true or not, or just apocryphal. But. It clearly means no one listened to my review.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Noel Clarke certainly didn't. He's going to be on to, to have a word. So um, there's a good chance that he'll be on um, next week. So uh, we'll, we'll be discussing it then. Hopefully you'll have a chance to see it by then. Um, OK, that's the film reviews for, uh, for this week. Um, we are going to move on. OK, so now we have our Rip from the Crypt section, which is our weekly peek inside the video vault of uh, Forgotten Gems. And we pick out one film that we think uh, should maybe be seen more widely and we're looking to celebrate that um on the podcast so i'm going to go first this week and it's a particularly fun one for me i'm a big big fan of this film and it's nice to be uh it's nice to be getting to talk about it'll be interesting to see if, uh, if if you guys have seen it it's a 19 um it's a 1977 film and i don't know how widely it's been seen um outside of uh you know the various different um niche interests but it's a film um that was uh, that was um, directed by, and I'm going to butcher his name, uh, Nobuhiko Obayashi, Obayashi maybe potentially. He did this in uh, 1977, and it's a film called Houseu, and it translates much nicely uh, into into English uh, as House. Now, um, I came by this film on a recommendation of a friend. Uh, he said you've never seen anything like it. It's the it's the craziest, most bizarre. Film you've ever seen, and I was kind of thinking, well, maybe, maybe not. Let's, let's, you know, take a look at it. Basically, what it does is it tells the story of seven school friends um, in Japan who uh, who have a, a, like a school holiday, and they decide to go and visit one of the aunts uh, or an aunt of one of the girls and. It's a really interesting take because it's a very simple story. They they all go together and they go on a journey to to, to the aunt and her house in the in the sort of wilderness. And there's a bit of um uh, one one of the girls has uh, has problems at home. Her father has you know recently got engaged to a to a new girlfriend and all the rest of it. Um, so it follows these these seven friends who you know seven dwarfs if you like. They are all pretty much one note characters. And they go to this to this house. Um of the arm who's in a wheelchair she's slightly dotty she has a cat and um, basically what happens is they're all there they're all there in the house it's a bit odd it's a bit unusual but um, things go very very wrong uh, very, very, you know, very seriously wrong very quickly on, on arrival in this house. Before this, you've, you, the way that Obayashi uses um, things like uh, painted backdrops and, um, you know, sort of superimposed images to create a really, really cartoon-like um, look to the film. And it's really really cute, and it's really fun it's almost as if a child is telling you this story and making things up and you know picking bits from here and there and sort of just shoving them on screen so it's, it's it's really silly and really you know witty and there's a particular point where, where where the bus taking them to this house stops and they um and they they have a, a melon seller who's sort of by the side of the road, and his entrance the first time he appears he's straight out scooby doo it's ridiculous and I have to say that I was you know not sure where it was all going, but then as soon as one of the girls wanders off, as they are wont to do in the dark, um, to go and get a drink at night. They don't come back, so one of the other girls goes and, and finds and you know finds them. It's it's then that you realise that this is all going to go pretty nasty. When she goes to the to the well, which is where she was going, and picks up her friend's head, but of course, her, the, the head is still moving and it's still talking. She drops it. She runs away, and the head basically jumps and bites her on the ass. So that's the very first indication you have that things are not going to go well. And things start to literally collapse in on them from, from the house, from, you know, from their own, they each have their own fears and they all get manifested in some ways. And it's, uh, you have these dancing rubber skeletons in, 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 the background. You have, um, one scene in particular, which is kind of the reason I'm recommending it because I, I enjoyed it so much. One of the girls plays the piano and she gets eaten by the piano and I've never seen that on screen before. I really enjoyed that. I thought this is the most crazy, bizarre, sur- you know, surreal film I've ever seen. Because then, not only does she get eaten by the piano, but a few seconds later, when her friends come in to discover that she's been eaten, her severed fingers are jumping about. You know, pr- play- playing the tune that she was playing before. It was just, you know, in- incredibly surreal, incredibly bizarre. And the way I kind of described it uh, to a friend of mine was: it's like the famous five do Resident Evil by way of Salvador Dali. That's how I kind of came to understand it. And it was um, just one of those mm-hmm. films that you see, you don't really believe what you're seeing because there are elements there that it's really camp and there are elements there that it's incredibly creepy because some of the images and the way that he uses animation and he uses um, you know, very stylized, um, you know, almost like kitsch effects, uh, you always have this underlying tension and this underlying feeling that things are just not quite right. So you have all of these things. You have these great practical effects and yet you have this you know so so you can laugh at it but at the same time you have this this real creepy sense that things are just not going right and it really really works towards the end of the film and obviously i'm not going to give it away but um there's a very uh toned down sequence right at the end where you realize that you know you realize kind of what's happened and it kind of sends a bit of a chill through you so um it's actually getting a criterion release um i think in a couple of months so people will be able to um to discover I, this it's just
2: I just looked that up, actually, John. It's September. September. It's okay. June. But it is, a, it is out on Masters of Cinema now. Mm. You can get it. But it's kind of worth I yeah. think, pretty much the same package, but region two. So
0: Okay. Excellent. Well, I mean, if, if you fancy, you know, waiting for the for the criteria and see what, you know, exactly what they do with it, then, then by all means. But um, this was just so much fun. I had such a laugh with it. And at the same time, I was really, really pleased that, that it was, you know, it's kind of maintained, not only the sort of playful charm but also the fact that it was it had all the best elements of of like a child's you know fairy tale nightmare there are enormous heads which sort of shoot through you know uh, holes and walls and things and there are so many things that you've never really seen before and it's the kind of thing that it is as i'm having trouble describing it now it's the kind of thing that you have to see and you have to kind of enjoy um i think different people will get different things from it but um craig we've um we've actually spoken about this film before you haven't seen it. Is is that right you, but, but you are aware of it
2: yeah i've i've wanted to see it for a couple of years and i was quite excited when uh, masters of cinema put finally put it out um and yeah it's it's purely just because i haven't got around to buying it to be honest i haven't seen it yet but um yeah i fully intend to see it very soon it's uh, looks i mean it's a film that if it was from any country would probably be the kind of film I'd be watching but the fact it's Japanese as well probably is uh, an extra selling point for me so I tend to uh, veer towards Japanese films quite a lot But yeah, you um, do,
0: well I thought I'd throw this <laughs> one in because <laughs> usually it's you recommended the Japanese one but
2: Yeah it's funny actually uh, John sent me the director's first name before mm. uh, as a kind of a tease and I, I guessed it straight away because it's just, yeah, it's it's a film that I I really should have seen, <laughs> kind of kicking myself
0: out. But well, for me, stuff. I have to say that um, it, I, I, I didn't know much about it. I mean, I certainly haven't heard it much talked about. I know, I know that it has it kind of has a, a small cult following. I know that the fact that it's being released, you know, this year, I think has kind of brought some of it back. But Brendan, what about you? I, I'm assuming that you've seen this
1: film. I have, but only very recently, actually. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. So uh, you almost got me. <laughs> <I> One <laughs> of these days, Connelly, I'll get you. <laughs> When we started ripping the Crypt, I don't think I'd seen it. Said, I really don't. my first. I think it's that recent. It was around about then, anyway. What did um, you think of it? I, 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 yeah, um, yeah, I think, God, I always want to spoil things. Can I just say, when we find out the sort of poignant element at the end of the film, mm. uh, that was the most interesting thing for me. I thought that the rest of it at fever pitch, kind of flat out, uh, sort of succeeded as a barrage of experimental techniques and novelty mm. um, and, and definitely held my attention um, uh, and sort of, you know, raised a lot of laughter and sort of sometimes made me think, that's just gross, um, uh, very gruesome at times. But uh, I, I'm not sure if it was a particularly deep experience uh, for the majority of its running time. Um, but I did like it, and I, I do think there is a lot of invention in there. Um, that piano scene uh I mean you know I mean there's an insert of the cat and the sort of sal animated flashes on his eyes, and then mm-hmm. the whole bit with the sort of trying to get the fingers and then um the cut ups i mean um uh I mean it does remind me of another film it does remind me very much of another film in some respects, but um I'm not going to mention that one because it's a future written from the crypt for me, so i'm going to call back to this one in the oh, future it. Okay. i think
2: I think just uh, that I think. That is a, the film that you're thinking of, Brenda. might be the same one I'm thinking of, because uh, is it a film that we discussed previously, but not on the podcast?
1: don't think
2: so. Because uh, uh, I don't is know it, whether to say it or is not. It,
1: is it from the Czech Republic?
2: Ah, uh, no, that wasn't the one uh, I was Ah, OK, OK.
1: But it's, right. there's something
2: about John's description that was making me think of another film, which... Uh, is another well, one that I would recommend. There's, there's a, rip- a few
1: films that happen these days. I mean, for example, if you look at something like Tokyo Gore Police or Frankenstein vs. Vampire Girl, or, or whatever it was it translated as, the way that they, there's those sort of you know barrages of low tech uh, kitchen table gore technique thrown at us, sort of almost in a sort of a uh, um, you know sort of almost an experimental film style. Uh, House definitely has some, you know, some comparison to that. I, I, I've seen it, I've seen another one of his films. I saw his adaptation of the girl who leapt through time, okay. and, and I don't think it's as good as the uh, the animated one. See, that's interesting but, uh, because
0: when when I saw that his his filmography, I was thinking, "Girl, leapt through time." Is that is that the same one? Did he do an anime? And of course, it's it's a different one, but. Would you say because I, I, I've, I've the, the anime one's actually um is, is waiting on, on a pile of mine to to watch? So I'm kind of thinking, is it worth going with the anime first and then maybe even looking at the other one or not?
1: Try and watch the live action one first because the anime I think is I don't know, I just think it's a little bit better. A okay.
2: little see, see, I didn't actually like the anime one, but um, I've not seen the live action, so I'm thinking maybe I should watch. There you
0: go. That's two ripped from the crypts for the price of one. This week, so um, well. I, I mean, just, you know, b- b- before we move on, one of the things that I enjoyed most about it was um, it was the fact that it was a very uh, charming start to it in the sense there was a lot of childlike imagery. But also, I really enjoyed the way that the practical effect worked, and I, I kept getting callbacks to you know to um, you know the early days of like silent film oh, and,
1: and a lot of it's like Victor Fleming. I mean, there's a shot. Yeah. In it. There literally is a shot in it that is. Just exactly like a shot from The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it's yeah, totally lit. Um, and and even some of his sort of uh, um, fake sort of multiplaney sort of stuff he does in Gone with the Wind. There's mm. of, like elements of that too.
0: All, all, all the painted backdrops you can just see Scarlett O'Hara. You know, sort of running out in, 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 into the middle of it. Do yeah, you know what I mean? And yeah, absolutely. It, but it's nice because it, it, it was taking all of these elements and, and sort of you know making something that I certainly hadn't seen for a long time before. And it was just nice to see something a bit more unusual. So, uh, so as, as Brendan said, it is out um, on uh, Region Two DVD. Now there is a criterion coming out in September, so do check it out because it, it's, it's, it's a film that you
1: haven't you And, and know, they're, the same, they're the same transfer, they're both based on the uh, Toho uh, remaster from, from recently. But the criterion one, of course, is going to be Master 20 SC, so the Region 2 one's going to look better for people who can play it. Okay, um,
0: okay, that's my Rip from the Crypt for this week. Um, uh, Craig, let's go with you. What's your, is it a Japanese one this week or are you moving further afield?
2: It's not, no. Uh, I, I did contemplate it, but I thought I probably should stop. Uh, for now, anyway. Um, no, the film I'm going to pick is... It's an American film, and uh, because it's an American film, I'm going to refer to it... I'm going to pronounce it incorrectly for quite some time, but, uh, I can't really help it. It's a film that is called Z Channel, A Magnificent Obsession. And, uh, of course, it's really called Z Channel, but... Um, And I hate saying Z-Channel. So, yes, Z-Channel, Magnificent Obsession, which is directed by um, Zan Cassavetes, which is uh, John Cassavetes' daughter. And it's a documentary about... It's essentially about the channel, but I would say it's probably more about a guy called Jerry Harvey, who was the head programmer uh, for quite some years for the channel. And uh, Z-Channel was a cable channel in the States where... Um, it showed films for 24 hours a day. And the films it picked were, I, I suppose, of an esoteric nature that um, Jerry Harvey's kind of passions and his tastes in film seeped into the channel. And um, along the way, he became friends with um, some some filmmakers as well, Michael Cimino. Um, and Jerry Harvey was pretty instrumental in getting uh, Cimino's Heaven's Gate uh, screened again in its full version and kind of reappraised by critics who, who realised that perhaps they'd been a little unfair to the film the first time around. Um, the film's really interesting look at cinema and it's an interesting look at obsession as well and it, it also is a very kind of tender story about Jerry Harvey. Um, he's a very sad figure. It's it's clear right at the start of the film that he died under very sad circumstances and as they gradually real you gradually realise how how sad those circumstances are. You realise it's um, he was a very very troubled man, and um, the mix of this with the kind of celebration of his his life as a cine lover is kind of is really interesting. And I think um, it, if for anyone who's a fan of cinema, it's a, it's a really enjoyable film to watch, and uh, it's very emotionally engaging because of the sad story of Jerry Harvey. But um, yeah, I mean the the films <laughs> are the star as well. Um, just unbelievable uh selection of films that played on this channel. And uh if it was if it was airing today I don't know how I'd sleep because there's just <laughs> so many good films on just when they show the the schedules. I mean there's even the, the kind of the what you could say are bad films that played on it were, were good in a way. They were the kind of films that even though that you think oh that's probably not gonna be any good but I've got to watch it, you know. <laughs> it's they had film festivals, um, you know, watching Sam Fuller films back to back would just be my idea of heaven so um, it's it's also got the, the documentary's got uh, respected filmmakers like Jim Jarmusch, and Alexander Payne um, also Quentin Tarantino uh, talking about um, their love of the channel and I mean Quentin Tarantino didn't even get it but he used to watch the all the films that he kind of watched when he was younger were taped from the channel and um he'd get them taped and by a friend and he'd give them to him and then he'd watch them so they'd always have the same introductions and uh, Alexander Payne even wrote to the magazine, he's got his own Z Channel t-shirt as well um, and yeah, I mean it's just there's a, I think probably we could put a video up but there's a great montage of all the films or a selection of the films that are on Z Channel and they're just it's just stunning to look at them, I think it's it's great that there was this channel that was showing all these films and I think it's sad that you don't quite kind of get that as much anymore
0: that um, sounds re- i mean craig is it available on dvd this this documentary
2: yeah yeah it's That's it's quite widely available as far as i know it's um a fair few extras on the dvd if i remember correctly as well it's um, so
0: interesting to see it because i mean i just looking at it now looking at all the all the directors involved and it's so amazing to see this this channel that had this this sort of you know this this much impact and I mean, it, it's kind of it, it can spark spark off a debate about what you remember seeing uh, on, on on TV, like where your love of film was was kind of made, and it's really interesting because we've had this conversation before on on, on the site about the fact that I remember Hammer horror films playing on BBC Two, you know, late at night, um, and you know, staying up to watch them, and then how on certain times of the year you were guaranteed to see a couple of Hitchcocks that that maybe weren't out on on widely released video at the time. Do you know what I mean? So, um, and little channels that a satellite TV came into the home. You could be, you know, you you could find, you know, new different types of films that you wouldn't necessarily see on like the four or five channels that, that you, you know, that you, that you had here. So to see this and then to think of all the, the kind of films and just to think of the amount of people that would have had their love for film, you know, sort of kicked off by this is, is pretty impressive. And it makes you wonder why, you know, you don't see this a bit more often.
2: And and how important it is, in a sense, for film that you've got kind of filmmakers that come on to talk about it and and you can tell that they wouldn't be sitting where they are talking to the camera about it, you know, without, as respected filmmakers, if it wasn't for this channel and the, the, the way it crafted their tastes and their interests and it, it spurred them off into new directions. And I think I certainly wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't for... Uh, the films that I saw on TV when I was younger. And uh, they're films I I don't think are on TV as much anymore. And I I remember the first... Kind of going to that for the fact that I always recommend Japanese films. The first subtitled film I ever saw was uh, Rashomon, that my dad taped off TV, and I saw it when I was really young, like a a little kid, essentially, and finding it really hard to keep up with the subtitles, (laughs) but being engrossed by the story and just, you know, one Sunday rainy afternoon watching it. And I think... That you know, that's that's a memory will always stick with me, and obviously led me in a direction uh, in my love of films that that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And I think it's yeah, it's it's absolutely great that to think about that story and and yeah, the really interesting films. Really, it will send you off in I, afterwards. I was thinking, oh damn it, I haven't seen that or that or that. I kept thinking of films that it's like a little hour and a half Brit from the crypt in a sense as well <laughs> where it added to that story of jerry harvey because you get this whole essentially you get jerry harvey recommending you all these films um you know uh, from the grave almost uh, it's these these are films that he loved when he was alive and uh, and y- you can still be recommended them by watching this documentary it's it's pretty cool
0: okay i love it brendan have you seen this have you
1: uh, i have i saw it on on dvd um Uh, when I was over in the States and and seeing it on DVD, I'm not quite sure where the film ends and the supplements begin because I sort of ate them all up, right? (laughs) Um, For me, there were two really strong stories as well as the story of Jerry Harvey. One is the one about uh, Heaven's Gate and Michael Chimina and the other one is about uh, Overlord, uh, Stuart Cooper's film, which was effectively completely unknown um, and has actually had a leash of life since this documentary's come out, um, and it's, it's you know, a, a, a sort of a, a period film set on D-Day, uh, made in the 70s, pretty much as though it had been made, you know, at the time. And uh, Stuart Cooper's not a huge name, and a lot of people don't have any concept of who he is at all, and Overlord's actually a tremendous film, and, and, and both uh, C-Channel and um, uh, this, this documentary of... of Gone some way to actually making people aware of him and, and, and his work, um, and and I do think the comparisons to what we're what we're doing here are actually quite humbling, aren't they? Really, um, but it's what we're trying to do. You yeah. know, it is what yeah, we're trying. It's what we're trying to do. Um, I never saw it, of course I didn't. But I, I reflect on you know the parallels uh, in in British television, and and I think that by the time Movie Drone was on, it was all over because then films of a type films of a of a certain shade were being ghettoized by that point really um so by the time i was about 17 uh the ending had begun and pretty soon uh the variety of films on television you know started thinning out and i'm sure if i had sky and i was uh uh, you know, putting uh, money in the coffers of Evil Uncle Rupert, I'd um, have a greater variety of films to watch, but I'm, I'm quite sure they'd still be um, a selection and, and not an ideal selection and definitely not a selection made by film lovers. Yeah, it's and really... I, a I, think you're right as
2: well, I think you're right as well, Brendan, about the kind of ghettoisation of film genres. Mm. I mean, Sky, as far as I understand it, is mostly Sky kind of a horror channel and then a you know a comedy channel and and that uh, i don't think that's the way you should be viewing films and uh, i i worry about the future of the internet as well and the way that the recommendation systems and those kind of algorithms that are working behind the scenes now to to kind of steer you towards films that it, people are encouraged to only like one type of film and that if you go on amazon and you buy a couple of films it tells you the kind of films that you will also like and I, I don't know if that recommendation system is is particularly valid or, or a good thing and i think the way jerry harvey clearly programmed the channel that he would put films that don't sit next to each other next to each other but they would be films that are good films and that you you could accidentally almost watch something that blew your mind and uh, I, th- I think that's that's so much more exciting than the 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 way we we perhaps have it now, even even with the greater access, and I think that greater access as well leads into the. Into problems where people just watch films that they they will like. I mean, I know I do that sometimes. I'm terrible for it, but,
0: but I mean, it, it depends. Because if you've got something like, you know, my recommendation this week, if you, uh, you know, if, if if you were to run it through a search engine or you, you know, find it on Love, them or whatever, and it, it would like do suggested titles, you'd find and Scream sitting alongside Seven Dwarves, and you'd find, you know, so many other kind of you know oddities uh, from it. But the point is that it would it would try and work out what it's got as its genre. And then it, it would just literally line it up with the rest of them, and it's interesting that Brendan, you uh, you mentioned movie Drone, because I remember, I remember staying up late because I was a kid at the time watching things like Terminator. And you had was was that the one with Alex Cox at the start, Brendan? Uh, yeah, initially it was yeah. Cox. Yeah. See, I remember they had hearing those people. Yeah, and uh, that's where I saw it. Uh, you know, I used to just tune in every single week, or you know, as often as it was on, because it was one of the few places that that, that you could see it, and you. I don't think, you know, you don't necessarily get that. I mean, the...
1: Trancers played and was taken seriously. Let's just stop and think about this. Trancers was played on BBC2 at 10-something in the evening and was taken seriously. Uh, now, I would, like, I'd give birth to a pickled egg if that happened tomorrow. I just <laughs> cannot conceive of that happening anymore. And, that, and that's with, like, far fewer
0: channels. Do you know, what I mean, that's the thing to to remember. When this was on, you had four channels, and yet they dedicated two hours a night, or you know, two hours of, of a particular night on one of the channels to these, the, you know, these films. And you, and you would find other things on Channel Four when it when it started as well. People were maybe more keen to um, you know to put out these films. But also, when when, when I think of things like I saw you know doc, documentaries on on Channel Four and also BBC Two about, uh, you know looking at films, I saw a lot of a lot of films initially in clip form do you know what i mean so they they were kind of being recommended to me there and i would see something that i like the look of and then all of a sudden you know i would then find new directors find new you know maybe even new genres i didn't know existed so there was a kind of a real appetite because it wasn't so widely available i couldn't just type it into imdb find out all the director find out all the cinematographer you know and that sort of thing and then kind of find my own way it was actually quite nice to have these these people who thought well exactly like you know this this guy on uh, on z channel must have done it's like this these are the films i love i'm going to put them on let's see what you think do you know what i mean so okay well i mean um let's uh, that's a really good recommendation i will be putting a post on the website and i'll try and find that clip you're talking about craig with all the you know the um, the sort of samplings of uh, the films they were showing um that leads us nicely into brendan's rip from the crypt what film do you think we should all see this week brendan
1: well, let's just put it like this. Uh, your film, John, scored 78% on Rotten Tomatoes. Craig, your film scored 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> and my film, well, it scores 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> so um, there's the full
0: spectrum this week, then, OK?
1: It's, it's a sincere recommendation of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a failed film that should have been tremendous. Um, and you can see uh, the beautiful film Locked in It. And it's a film called Heartbeeps, and it was directed by uh, Alan Arkush. Have either of you seen it? No. No. Okay, Heartbeeps is the story of uh, two robots um, who uh, fall in love and run away, build a baby. Um, and then end up getting chased by by other robots in a sort of a futuristic robot world, and they sort of leave industry and end up fleeing into the the country. The robots are played by Bernadette Peters and Andy Kaufman in full robot prosthetics.
0: I'm just looking at, at the picture on IMDb. Brendan, what the hell are you recommending to us? It looks terrifying. <laughs>
1: um, and the baby, which I imagine you can probably see in that picture, I think it, 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 the most commonly seen picture, there's a little baby in the front of them. The voice of the baby was provided by Jerry Garcia. So um, it's, um, <laughs> it's an unusual film.
3: Okay. It's definitely
1: an unusual film. But I think it's, it's quite definitely a heartfelt film, and it was an attempt in a sort of a post-Star Wars world to tell a more gentle story about love, full of special effects. When was it out, Was it early 80s sometime? 1980, 81. OK. Um, it pretty much vanished. I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's two anecdotes about this film that I, I'd heard, and I thought, I only know two anecdotes about this film. i better do some research. And <laughs> these are the only two anecdotes about this film I can actually find anywhere. So I'll tell you these two anyway. Um, the first one is that um, uh, Andy Kaufman went on to Dave Letterman's show after it had uh, been out and he said, I'm really sorry, I'm really disappointed in the film and uh, I'd personally like to refund anybody who actually came to see it. And Letterman said to him, you, you better have changed for a $20 bill with promises like that. Uh, all words to that effect. So few people actually went to see this film. <laughs> Kaufman could have refunded them all and still had changed for chips. Um, that's, that's apparently true. The other anecdote is that, um, according to Bob, Bob Smuda, who anybody who follows Kaufman or indeed has seen Man in the Moon will, will know that he was Kaufman's co-conspirator. Um, according to him, uh, they were, were wanting to, to, to make a movie, uh, that they'd written together. Um, and, uh, the studio said, well, you know, uh, we don't know if anyone's going to want to watch a movie with, with Kaufman in. Let's put him in something and see if it works. And um, it didn't work. <laughs> so, uh, but it's a very sincere, strange film. It's almost fills avant-garde in places. John Williams, by far the away, most interesting score John Williams has done, I think. Uh, a little bit more experimental, a little bit of electronica in it. Some of the cues are kind of familiar, though, actually, to be fair not a huge John Williams fan, but I do like Alan Arkush. And Arkush, you know, um, previously collaborated with with Joe Dante, um, Rock and Roll High School, uh, Hollywood Boulevard and so on. Um, And and he has this similar sort of taste for for cartoon live action, right? And a similar sort of sensitivity to a sort of outmoded sci-fi aesthetic. And it's strange that some of these films are so high pace and energetic actually turned out something that in places feels a little bit turgid. And I'm sad to say that, but I do think there are bits in it that just sort of limp along, but I think it's not because it's too long. I mean, it's 79 minutes. Trust me. It's not too long. I think it's because important beats are taken out and we can't quite keep up with the romance at the heart of it. And I think if they went back and they stuck in whatever the 10, 15, 20 minutes, they axed out of it actually make a bit more sense. Um, so, you know, where is the Jerry Harvey who's going to campaign for the, uh, for the elongated uh, heartbeats, the director's cut, so that it can be re-evaluated? But sincere recommendation, because you've not seen anything like it. Okay, that sounds, that
0: sounds bizarre uh, coming after Z Channel, but
2: go on, Greg. I think as well, Brendan touched on there, I, I didn't realise it was arkish, that um, I really like rock and roll high school. Um, that Arkish did as well. I mean, there were a lot of people involved in that film, and I think Joe Dante worked on the script as well, perhaps. But, and he um,
1: directed elements of it when, when yeah. Arkish was sick.
2: And um, I'm trying to think what else Arkish did. He did a load of TV work as well, didn't he? Um, did he direct Death Sport as well? Is that him? Uh, I
1: don't think so. Uh, I may be wrong, but um, he did a film about the Temptations, with uh, a lot of people think think the television. D one, um, he's lately been doing you know TV that people are watching things like Heroes and stuff like that. I wish he wasn't. Um, he deserves better than, than Heroes. You know, <laughs> Ali, Ali would be. I mean, honestly, <laughs> um, but um, you know, uh, um, you know, the Septuagenarian Substitute Ball was was one of his. Get Crazy was one of his. You know. Back when he was making films, they were good. But I think probably the probably the most viewed work outside of the episodic TV ever did was his Temptations film. Um, I, I honestly don't remember who did Death sport if, if it was him, I, I I I need to go back and revisit it because I've not seen it in about eighteen years.
2: No, I haven't seen it in quite a long time. But I I think it is him. I think I yeah. I mean that that whole period. I think there's a, f- a few films maybe he made that that make me think that he should have gone on to do something else really because the apart from all this TV work because yeah he did a lot of TV work and i think um yeah there's there's some things about rock and roll high school that i really love i rewatched it recently and uh, i think it's just come out on blu-ray as well i think um
1: it is indeed Shelf yeah
2: Shout factory put it out and i think um is it on it is on blu-ray yeah
1: yeah it is yeah i think so um i think Arkush is good i think he's really good and um i just wish he'd, he'd been able to make more you know more features but uh, heartbeats is one of those films that seems to you know suck the air out of a career unfortunately <laughs> I, I, undes- I, mean, I think undeservedly so i mean it is considered one of the all-time great turkeys by the people who do know anything about it which are people in the minority and I, I can honestly say to you that my wife's experience of it is she remembers it being on hbo quite a lot in the 80s And, you know, Zeke Channel were not the only people showing films. They may have been the most discerning. There was, you know, a big cable appetite for for a lot of movies. And a lot of stuff like this would sit around waiting to be discovered, really. Um, And I think that's where Heartbeat started to get, you know, started to get its uh, reputation. And I, I can honestly just tell you, I just saw some clips of it when I was in the US. And I just thought, I have to see this entire movie. And it, uh, forty-five minutes later, or was at the start of the, the DVD.
0: Is it out on DVD here, Brendan? Do you know? Oh, I doubt it very much. Well, that's a shame. Well, I'm sure there are ways around that. I'm sure you can maybe order it from uh, from abroad it's, if
1: you. Yeah, here, here's the golden gospel of Rip from the Crypt. Buy a multi-region DVD player. I don't care what country you're in; you need <laughs> one.
0: There you go, and you know what, Brendan? Because a lot of people listening to this in the, in the uk might might say well i haven't got useful one maybe one week we should talk about the fact maybe recommend some sites where you can order you know region one and and, and the other regions um because i don't know I, I used to know a lot of sites but now i I'm, i have to say that i, I wouldn't know you where to begin so
1: amazon.co.uk will ship you us discs if that's what comes up on your search <laughs> okay interesting well maybe we can talk about that a bit later but all right
0: that's a three crazy films, uh, from Ripley, the greatest way. Thank you guys for those. Um, we're going to round this, uh, mouth of podcast up. Uh, I'd like to say thank you to Craig and, and, and to Brendan for your recommendations and for your conversation, uh, this week. Um, as I said, uh, earlier, um, HeyYouGuys.co.uk. Um, you can find everything that we talk about, everything that, that we write is there. Um, likewise, you can follow us on Twitter. If you're into that, HeyYouGuys blog is our username there. We're on Facebook and uh, and we've also got a forum, which I mentioned last week. So do come along. That's HeyYouGuys.co.uk/slash/forum. Uh, sign up in the, and get chatting. Um, as I said at the start of the of, of the episode. Uh, following uh, our goodbyes here, you'll be able to hear Brendan's chat with um, with Craig McCall about his uh, his film Cameraman, The Life and Works of Jack Cardiff. So um, if you have any, any 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 comments or anything you want to tell us about, uh, email us at mouthoff at hey you It's been a fun show. Thanks so much, guys, and we'll see you all next week.
1: Good morning, Craig. Thank you for uh, agreeing to talk to me about your film, Cameraman. Are um, you doing lots of interviews for this one?
3: Yes, I am, actually. It's, um, it's proving a lot of interest in the film, which is great, and uh, I'm really excited about it breaking out from the cinema in London, although it's great for people to watch in London. I do think it's fantastic that it's getting around the UK right now.
1: So is it an expansion on Painting with Light, or is it a new project altogether? <laughs>
3: Um, Well, Painting with Light, which is specifically dealing with Jack's work on the Pal Pressburger classic, Black Narcissus, Mm -hmm. um, was actually made out of the footage of this main film. It's just it took me so long to get the big film done that um, Painting with Light... Um, I was a DVD extra for when uh, they put uh, Black Narcissus on DVD in the states, Britain, and France, and um, because that was such a seminal film and Jack's work on it, um, I felt well. While I'm making the main film, I'll, I'll make I just really call it an offshoot film. So people have seen it. There'll be a little bit of duplication of of, of interview, but not much.
1: It was it was great actually, and it really did sort of wet my appetite for what you were going to do do next. And I I didn't really think you were going to be be expanding on that. But Jack does seem to be the one sort of celebrity cinematographer, really.
3: I think it helped that he wrote a book. It always helps that your stories you can get out there. Um, I think he's, he's his peer group um, himself, uh, Jeffrey Unsworth. Um, and, and others of that period, uh, Billy Williams and that. They're they're all great cinematographers, Freddie, Freddie Young, who obviously worked with David Lean. But Jack, um, his particular art, and also because he's such an influence on people like Martin Scorsese and because there's been a, a re-awareness of all the Powell Pressburger films, I think that um, it has put the spotlight on him a lot more. Plus, also, Jack has gone to, over the last few years, he was still shooting, uh, but also turned up at a lot of festivals and did a lot of talks. So different different groups. It's amazing, um, uh, Brendan. A number of people I've met recently who said they'd seen him talk at various occasions in Britain or in Europe in the last few years. So um, his story has got out there. And, of course, now that my film's out there, um, it, the story will expand and go on. And, and what, what the difference is, is at least in the film, you can see it intercut with the clips and also other people. I mean – Jack's biography um, is great, but the point of the, the documentary is so you can hear it from other people's points of view. So you can hear Kirk Douglas talking about why he thought Jack's use of cinematography was suited to his film, and you can hear Lauren McCall telling the stories in an African queen, and I think it just brings it very alive.
1: And of course, it means something completely different when you can see uh, the actual footage in conjunction with these stories as well.
3: Well, it is about cinematography, and I know it's almost a silly overt thing to say but yeah you do need to cut the clips to see what he did i mean reading about it is great and and that it's very important to have it down as a piece of text but you really want to watch it and you really want to watch it as close to the way that they were trying to do it and jack predominantly worked in the medium to be projected on large screens and so to really appreciate what he was doing it you want to see it in the correct framing and projected on a big screen and then you can really get the full story
1: so, um, one of the th- things that, you know, uh, seemed to be, play a big part in the rehabilitation of his of his reputation, or even the forging of his reputation in the first place, was, was you know, his mention in, in books about Paul and Pressburger. And I remember seeing him interviewed by Ian Christie, and Ian was sort of taking credit for... Creating the notion of of Jack Cardiff as a uh, you know as a as a as a great cinematographer, and and the idea was that, th- that this only began as late as the as the eighties.
3: Well, Ian Ian did some notes for uh, whatever way we want to talk about it at the the emergence of the Powell Pressburger films. And out of some some lecture notes, he, there was a book called Hours of Desire, which was Ian Christie's book. Yeah. And that combined with Mark Scorsese asking, and the red shoes was shown, I believe, in the early 80s in New York. There's a, a reawakening. I mean, it does help that someone as influential and as broadly known as Mark Scorsese helms it. And Michael Powell um, had met Thelma Schoenmacher, Mark Scorsese's longtime collaborator and editor, mm-hmm. and she married him and spent, the last years of his life before he died um, together. And between the two of them, they have really, I call it, kept the torch up for, for all the Powell Pressburger films. I mean, in my documentary, Alan Parker makes a very good point. He says... You know the, the Paul Presburger films were were, were art. Then they were kitsch, and then they were art again. I think everything recycles, and you have different generations. Whether it's Derek Jarman talking about uh, Black Narcissus back then, or a new generation now, Martin Scorsese talking about the Red Shoes. You know things things come up, like all filmmakers do. I think they go in and out of vogue. But Jack, because those three films are so important—the three Paul Pressburger films he did, A Matter of Life and Death, Black Narcissus, and The Red Shoes—then he's he's inextricably linked to that period, but also for, for all the right reasons. He did, Black Narcissus did change the way a lot of people looked at the use of Technicolor. I mean, the, the point was that post-war Britain was on a bit of a high. People enjoyed watching movies from Britain um, and stories that related almost closer to home. And it, it, for a while, Technicolor coming out of Hollywood was beautifully used, but it was, it was cost more. And so they, they tended to put it on musicals and big outdoors pictures, whereas all of a sudden, post-war Britain, particularly with Paul Pressburger films, the use of color and light, painterly way, about nuns on the mountain, I mean, they, they, they just they stood out, and when these films went out, or again, around the world, Jack's name was linked to them, or, and he won the Oscar for Black Narcissus in 1947. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and indeed, you know, some of the shots in, in Black Narcissus, not just in terms of their lighting, but in terms of, of their very conception, seem to have been Jack's, for example, the, the rain dripping on the on the leaf and, and, and so on. So he seems to have had a uh, quite a powerful influence on, on Black Narcissus in particular.
3: I think it was because Michael Powell with Emmerich Prescott were very shrewd to give everybody their head. Jack, the art director, Alfred Younger, who also won the Moscow that year, Hein heckroth the costume. I mean, Brian Eastdale, the composer. I mean... The genius of Michael Powell over and above his own inherent abilities and artistic talent was to put, combine all these people, quite, quite a few of them had come over from, from mainland Europe fleeing the rise of the Nazis like mm-hmm. Alfred Junger. Mm-hmm. And so he put a, I mean, on Bart Narcissus alone, there were eight of them who were accomplished painters in their own right. Which is extraordinary. So you had all of that talent, sometimes clashing, but in the end, Michael knew what he was doing. He was—it um, was this concoction of, of talent, and and he he knew how to guide it. And while Rank kept J. Arthur Rank kept paying for it, it created these amazing films. Unfortunately. Um, When it came to the Red Shoes, and it is talked about in my film, Rank thought they'd gone too far and pulled the plug, and that was the end of that amazing run. I mean, Scorsese says it was the longest run of subversive filmmaking in a major studio ever, and Jack was allowed to play in that run.
1: So if we're we're thinking now as, you know, the films of The Archers and and, and Jack's contributions is, is great art, how do we... How do we reconcile that with the the, the films he directed, say, in the, in the 70s and late 60s, which seem to be exploitation films, really?
3: Yeah, he, I think he always hankered to direct, and the first two films were kind of pretty much written off um, Beyond This Place, and I've forgotten the other one myself, but then when he did Sons and Lovers it gave him a bit of a platform, I mean it, it did quite well, and Sons and Lovers Jack always said was his, he was his proudest directorial piece, it was solid it was a literary ad- adaptation of D.H. Lawrence. I and, mean, you know, it was up for seven Academy Awards and he was up against Alfred Hitchcock and Billy Wilder. So I felt he felt that he had the gravitas. But as the 60s progressed and the world changed around him, all, not just he, but a lot of people. And the, people have asked me about this and Jack went in all sorts of departures. I think he just wanted to be creative. So when he ended up doing films like Girl on the Motorcycle, um, it was pretty much panned in London. It was it was a very successful film financially. Um, it was shot in English and in French. But Jack liked experimenting, so I think he just kept his head down and, and whenever he could, didn't worry about the outside world. I mean, I think the criticism hurt him a bit. And then, ostensibly, he had to return to cinematography. And in my film, I don't shy away from it, Richard Fleischer, the director, does say that it was difficult for a decision for Jack, but he realized it's better that he applied his talents and carried on. And it was a mixed bag. I think some of the films in the, in the seventies, I think things like, um, um, death on the Nile, t- you know, use his skills much more than perhaps other films.
1: So, Just, just to wrap up, Craig, sorry, cause we're, we're running That's short fine. on time, but, um, what do you think cinematographers in particular can take away from, from Jack's legacy?
3: Um, not to worry about the boxes and them and that to be, to be the best lieutenant to director and, and, and to always be curious. Never start shutting down your ideas or, you know, always realize there's a different way of looking at things. Jack was infinitely curious. It was amazing. I mean, as Kirk Douglas says, he had the eyes of a child. It reminded him of Chagall. Constantly curious. Always, always enjoying the fact that he could, there was another shot and another way of applying light.
1: And audience image, what should they take away from your film, do you think?
3: Um... I'm really pleased the way, the number of times people laugh at the film because I, I've tried to weave, basically I want them to be inspired to go and look at films they may have seen and, and perhaps look into the corners of films that they haven't seen before and have a little bit of adventure through film, through, through the films that Jack worked on.
1: Well, wonderful, Craig. Th- thanks for for talking to me. I mean, after I read Arrows of Desire and I saw there were maybe two index numbers for Jack in the in in, in the back pages, there <laughs> so I thought, you know, this guy really needs there needs to be more said about him. And uh, yeah, and doing it on the big screen, you're absolutely right. What what it needs to be.
3: Well, I hope you get to see it at some point, Brendan.
1: As soon as I possibly can.
3: (laughs) Well, I'll see you. Well, it's going to be, I'm doing a little talk. I don't know if it's applicable, but I'm doing a talk um, this Sunday in Glasgow and then on Tuesday the 8th in Belfast. So I'm going to try and get around to answer as many people's questions at the screenings as possible.